0: Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7 through 11. Paul says this. Now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of the Messiah's gift. For it says, when he ascended on high, he took prisoners into captivity. He gave gifts to people. But what does He ascended mean except that He descended to the lower parts of the earth? The one who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that He might fill all things. This is God's Word, which He promised to bless when we gather around it together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You that Your Word doesn't return to You void, But when you send it out, it will accomplish all that you have required of it. And we gather here this morning knowing that you have sent your word out to us. And we pray that it would transform us and sanctify us. Pray right now, Lord, that as we speak about the gifts of God, the gifts of the Holy Spirit for the church, for your church, Lord, that you would do a work in us, Lord, that is to you for your glory and for each other's edification. I pray for those in uh, in this gathering, in this corporate gathering that would come into this place and feel worthless, that you, Lord, would cause them to feel empowered by grace. That the same Spirit who raised Christ from the dead dwells in our, our bodies. I pray for those of us, Lord, who are feeling complacent, who are acting and living complacent, that, Lord, you would cause us to be moved with affection. I pray for those of us who are feeling overconfident about ourselves, that you would bring us a holy fear and a reverence to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God that is at work in us to work and to will for his good pleasure. All in all, I pray that, God, you would say as you do in your word that you would fill all things for your own glory. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever been given a task or a goal or a project and felt a a, a bit of frustration because even though you, you are being told to do something, you don't quite know how to go about doing it. Perhaps you were a visionary and you uh, don't necessarily need all the mechanics and all of the tasks, but you need a vision, you need something to, to hang on to, or perhaps you are a task-oriented person, and you need not just a vision, but you need an outline, a structure of things to do. Have you ever just been told to do something, but you, you haven't been really given any, any, any type of detail, any type of uh, a step-by-step, or what it looks like, or what it's supposed to be? This is the story that we find ourselves in in Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul exhorts, no, he commands the church to be unified, preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. He does that in verses 1 through 3 in the fourth chapter. He even tells us why we should be unified. One body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Father, When God, over all and in all and through all, He even tells us the basis, now He will tell us how, what that looks like in verses 4 through 11. I want to look at it in three different ways. What the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, what Christ-centered unity should look like in three different ways, what Paul would say it requires, what unity requires in the church of Jesus Christ. Two, I want to look at the things that it includes in the church, what we should be looking for. And lastly, I want to look at what this unity accomplishes when we cultivate it in a gathering and in the life of the church. Let's skip ahead to verse 8, and this is where we're going to see what unity requires. When Paul borrows from Psalm 68 to say, when he ascended on high, he took prisoners into captivity. He gave gifts to people. He's borrowing from Psalm 68. And you can actually uh, keep your thumb in Ephesians 4. Turn to Psalm 68. We're not going to read the whole thing. It's fairly long. But I want you to at least look at it. Especially what he's taking from. Scholars... Often rank this psalm to be one of the most difficult to interpret, but there are a few things we can at least take from it, as we're reading the Apostle Paul. Some would call this a psalm of kingship, so it's not a psalm of lament it's It's not a, a psalmist pouring out his heart in lament. Uh, it's not necessarily a hymn, uh, just uh, unadulterated praise. It's a psalm of kingship where the psalmist uh, declares the, the conquering, victorious nature of, of Yahweh. We see some of these themes, captivity, the, uh, the king coming and, and taking captive his enemies and rescuing his people and his enemies, uh, 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 giving tribute back to the king. But more importantly, we see over the whole psalm this, this coherent movement from the beginning to the end where we see the faithfulness of God spread out all over the life of Israel. We see it in Psalm 68 verse 1 and uh, through 18, where God's past faithfulness is put on display. But then we see, in verses 19 and 20, we see God's present, continuing faithfulness and salvation in the life. Of Israel, And then in verses 21 and 23 and in other parts of the remaining psalm, we see God's future salvation, that he will always be there for the people of God. And it's from God's present salvation, it's from him being present in the life of his people right now that Paul begins to borrow from the psalm with some changes. He throws in a couple alterations. You'll notice that in Psalm 68, it says that you, uh, in Psalm 68 verse 18, you ascended the heights, taking away captives. But in Ephesians chapter 8, he says, when he ascended on high, and in Psalm 68, it's speaking about Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but in Ephesians, Paul speaks of Christ, putting those two together, speaking about a messiah. You'll notice that in, uh, excuse me, in Psalm sixty-eight he speaks of of Yahweh receiving gifts from people, but in Ephesians we see that this person is giving gifts to people. So no longer receiving gifts from people, he is now giving gifts to people. People, uh, people, and scholars and theologians trip out over this verse. Some of them don't know what to make of it. They think Paul made a mistake. Some of them think he was uh, just going a little berserk, others believe, rightfully so, that he was using possibly a different reading of the same psalm in order to bring out a messianic fulfillment. He is using a different rabbinical reading of the same psalm in order to prove what the psalmist was looking forward to, that the Messiah, King Jesus, fulfills Psalm 68. He is the one who conquers. He is the one who takes captive not just the enemies of Israel, but death and and the grave and sin and bondage. And yes, he receives gifts, but in a tremendous traumatic act of grace, He gives them as well. What does unity require? Well, we could say, based on the words of Paul, that it requires a king to rule. Alistair Begg would once comment that our hearts are tyrants and we need a king to rule over them. We need a king to usurp the bondage of sin in our lives. We need a a, a supernatural king to overthrow the chains and the sin that so easily entangle us. And in Christ, we have the best king. Now, anytime we hear words like usurp or overthrow or a change of leadership, which is what this is, some of us feel a little bit uneasy. If you live in the corporate world and you hear anything like change or change of leadership or change of management, where does your mind go? Well, they're going to clean house. I might lose my job. If you live in a country and it's being taken over and you immediately think of regime change, where does your mind go? Well, if those aren't the people that are my people, they're going to do something to my people. I might be displaced. I might become a refugee. In other words, whenever there's a change of leadership, we see this drive for uniformity. We want to make everybody look like us and behave like us and act like us. And Jesus, though he is taking over and cleaning house... In the spiritual realm and in the world, he does things a whole lot different. This is the second point. Unity requires a king, but this unity includes something different than we usually see. Look at verse 7. Back up to verse 7. Now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of the Messiah's gift. Last week, we looked at the basis for unity and we saw this overarching theme. One God, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one spirit, one body, one, 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 a unity, something that transcends our petty differences and that brings us together. There is one unity. And then he moves into verse 7 to say, now grace was given to each one. One, 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 one. Now grace is given to each one. One. The oneness now, this unity is being presented in terms of our individuality. This is a huge concept for the church. A unity in which we are not made like cookie cutter copycats of one another. But that God retains our individual identities. He retains our little quirks. He retains the little things about you. And then He gives you things specific. To the image of God in you, to empower you to come together for that unity. Huge concept that humanity has been trying to tackle, some more successful than others. When I was on the prayer tour for Boston, not this last one, but the one before that, I meandered into a different section of Boston. Some would say I got lost. Not true. And I found my way into a, a, a university. It was Boston University. And so at the time I was a college pastor, loved universities, so I, I, I walked through it and I found this chapel in the middle of Boston University. So I walked in there just for a sense of solitude away from the city and maybe to take some pictures of the architecture and I, I sat in the back row and just began taking in the silence and looking at the walls and wondering, wow, this is a... Not the most ornate architecture I've ever ever seen, but I wonder what the history is behind this building. And I left, unbeknownst to me, that this chapel, it was called Marsh Chapel, was home once upon a time to the Dean Howard Thurman. Howard Thurman, who would later become an influential figure in the civil rights movement in our nation. Howard Thurman fought for this concept that unity should exist in community while we retain our individual identities. He wrote a book based on the biblical principles of the image of God in every single person. It was called The Search for Common Ground, where he said that there is a spirit in man, there is a sense in humanity that knows that for all men to be alike is the death of life in man. And yet, perceive we must perceive harmony that transcends all diversities, in which diversity finds its richness and significance. For all men to be alike is the death of life in man. He would later on go on to become the spiritual father of many students, including one young Boston University student by the name of Martin Luther King, Jr., who would make his way into the chapel and learn from his spiritual father, Howard Thurman, who would go on to expound on some of those writings, writing a book by the name of Strength to Love, in which he would take that concept that Thurman wrote, that we must retain the image of God in each of us as individuals, but it must then be poured back into community. He would write, Martin Luther King Jr., in a real sense, all life is interrelated, All men are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Listen to this. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I'm what I ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. These two men were saying, based on their Baptist upbringing and principles of the image of God found in Scripture, that there is called upon the church a unity without uniformity. That we are called to be unified, but we are not called to be copycats. There is called to be, especially in the church of Jesus Christ, an atmosphere where diversity is allowed to thrive, not for the individual's sake, but for the benefit of the whole. You were made how you were made, to thrive how you thrive, with the image of God in you, and as a Christian, with the likeness of God being transformed to catch up with the image of God in you, so that you could benefit the whole of the body of Christ. And Jesus Christ, thousands of years before that, "...instituted this and affects it by saying in Ephesians through Paul, "...now grace was given to each one of you." Meaning that every single Christian who has been regenerated by the Spirit of God has been given a specific gift by the Holy Spirit. There are not some who are gifted and some who are laymen. There are not some who are super talented and spiritual and others who just sit back and watch." Every single Christian has been supernaturally empowered by the Holy Spirit for a specific task. We call these spiritual gifts. A gift is simply the supernatural, spirit-given power and capability requisite to complete a God-given mission. We believe that Christ is building His church and that all of us who are Christians are called to Be on mission with the church of Jesus Christ, with the mission of Christ, and that we have been specially empowered for that task. I want to give you six observations from the scriptures about spiritual gifts. I wish we could spend weeks on it. I will try to combine all of that in two minutes. God help me. First observation. There is a litany of juicy spiritual gifts listed in the New Testament. You should read them. We'll read them right now. Romans chapter 12, verse 6 through 8. The gift of prophecy, or the spirit endowed ability to bring to mind spontaneously something that was previously unknown. Wonderful. Serving. There is a spirit given ability to serve. Teaching, exhortation, giving, or we could call it generosity, the gift of leadership, the gift of mercy. Paul would write to the Corinthians in First Corinthians chapter 12, verse 8 through 10, there's a gift of the word of wisdom, being able to speak wisdom uh, that is not natural wisdom. Uh, there's the word of knowledge. There is the, the gift of faith. I think I have those on, on one line. Those are two different gifts. The gift of faith. Uh, people that have the the ability by the Spirit to have faith for a moment when other people are discouraged by circumstances, the gift of healing, the gift of miracles, the ability to distinguish between uh, spirits, between a good spirit and a bad spirit, the gift of tongues, the ability to glorify God in other languages, and then the coinciding gift, the uh, ability to interpret those tongues so that they can be understood and God can be glorified. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 28, the gift of helps, the gift of administration. And Some of these gifts will overlap on each other. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, which we will speak about next week, uh, apostle, the gift of uh, apostleship, the gift of the prophet, the gift of the evangelist. The gift of the pastor teacher. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11. I think these are two gifts. The gift of whoever speaks. There's a gift of speaking. That's awesome. There's the gift of whoever renders service. You have this litany by Paul and Peter of different ways that the Holy Spirit rejuvenates people individually in the body of Christ to equip and build up the body of Christ for the mission of God. Second observation. I don't think these are all the gifts that God gives to the church. I don't think Paul meant to give an exhaustive list. I'm saying that because he does this quite frequently. First of all, he never says anywhere in the New Testament, this is the only list there is. In addition to that, we just saw where he listed off a bunch of areas uh, in Ephesians 4, verse 4 through 5, stressing unity around certain things. One God. One Father, one Spirit, one Lord, one baptism, one faith. But he doesn't mention everything. He didn't mention the crucifixion. He didn't mention the resurrection. Those are important. That wasn't his point. His point wasn't to give us a systematic theology, but to emphasize we're unified around these things. And I think that Paul is also trying to emphasize something here, not give a systematic list, that there are Spirit-endowed gifts of the Spirit for the church to do what we cannot naturally do in our own power. I'd like to think that there must be a gift for things like leading worship, that we shouldn't just throw somebody up who has an exceptional voice and can play guitar or piano, that supposedly the Spirit of God has to come upon that man or woman to lead the church in singing so that it's not all about them. I'd like to think that This person who invited me uh, and my wife into their house was exceptionally good at welcoming people that perhaps there's a gift of hospitality or something, that some people are way better at that than others. I'm I'm not sure, but I think. When I was uh, younger, in high school, and the preceding years before that, so half of my life, I hated to read. Not only did I hate to read, but I couldn't comprehend what I was reading unless it had a lot of pictures with color in it and 16-point font. I just had a hard time reading. I couldn't comprehend what I was reading. I didn't have a, uh, I don't think I have a very high IQ, so I couldn't comprehend a lot of stuff beyond a certain grade level, and so I just didn't read. It wasn't fun for me, and consequently, I didn't read the Bible as well. And I remember in the early years uh, coming to reality... um, Some of the staff would just hand me books that they were going through as a staff. It was almost like Black Market. They would just hand me books, uh, Spiritual Leadership by Oswald Chambers and Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire by Jim Simbala and uh, Heavenly Man by Brother Young and uh, books like that. They would just throw me these books and I'd begin to read them. And Almost overnight, this insatiable desire to read and study uh, the Bible, but also anointed words from men and women about the Bible and Christ begin to overwhelm my senses, and I haven't been the same since, and I just begin to devour stuff like that. I don't want to get crazy and say that reading is a spiritual gift. (laughs) Prophecy and tongues and the gift of healing and learning how to read good. I'm not going to go there, but I, I just want to say that Paul doesn't seem to give exhaustive lists. I wasn't able to do it for most of my life, and spontaneously I was able to do it, and those, that thing seems to fit directly into my calling uh, to edify the church, and so they all fit together. So do with that what you will, but don't get weird with that. Don't be like, I, I just got my driver's license, and I love to drive, so I have the gift of road trip, yeah! <laughs> I don't want us to get weird or unbiblical about it, but... I think it's worth, worth thinking about. that The point is God gives you supernatural abilities to edify the church. Third observation. These are spiritual gifts, not human talents. Many of you are talented in a lot, a lot of things. We're talking about something different. Um, we know this because Paul says in verse 7, uh, we know it from a, a lot of places, but in our text, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of the Messiah's gift. It's a gift of grace. It's easy to see giftings like administration that can be a natural gift and say, well, that, uh, you know, that's less supernatural than the gift of prophecy, which you know, requires God to you know, come into my heart and mind and s- help me see things. Administration, like I could get a degree in that, so maybe I have the gift of administration because I'm naturally good at it. Well, some of you are naturally good at the gift of administration, but we're ta- what we're talking about is over and beyond that by the Holy Spirit. Some of you are hospitable. Some of you are very uh, 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 other-serving. But we're talking about a spiritually endowed gift to be serving. We're talking about things that are not natural but but go beyond the natural ability. That's why you should never take uh, spiritual gift tests. Those things are stupid. I did that once. It told me I had the gift of intercession. They were wrong. Now, I'm called to pray, and I pray, but I don't have that gift. I know people who have that gift, and I'm not them. You see, what those tests do is they take what you are naturally good at, and they tell you that you're naturally good at them. (laughs) What the Holy Spirit says is I am going to give you, regardless of whether you are naturally good at it or not, the ability to do what I have called you to do. So don't take tests. Fourth observation. We shouldn't get gift envy. You know? <laughs> I have the gift of reading good, but that person is just prophesying their face off. I want to prophesy. I want to speak in tongues. That's awesome. I want to lay my hands on the sick and they recover and just people are just bouncing out of their beds when they were dead. I want to do that. I want the gift of serving. I just Cooking casserole for my comm group. That's not very sensational. I want to do something crazy. Don't envy the gifting of others, and here's why. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4-7, through there are different gifts, but there is the same Spirit. There are different ministries, but the same Lord. And there are different activities, but the same God activates each gift in each person. Why? A demonstration of the Spirit is given to each person to produce what is beneficial. Meaning, you have been given that which God declared... And destined for you to have because it is beneficial. Meaning the church cannot function unless you are functioning in what he has called you to function in. Don't get gift envy. Don't get gift aversion either. Like, here's what I mean. Oh, I see that there's the gift of giving. So, there's certain people who should give. That means I don't need to be generous. Wrong. You read the New Testament. A Christian by nature should be Generous. The person with the gift of generosity is simply way more generous than the rest of us. You might see, well, there's a gift of evangelism, so that means I don't need to tell anybody about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Wrong. There's just certain people that have a better ability to do that than the rest of us. When I first moved here and I was an intern at Reality, I ran into this, this guy, uh, Rory Graham. Who was a student at Westmont at the time. He was an evangelist. He saw me one day at a prayer meeting, uh, thought I was a 17-year-old punk kid, which I was a punk kid, but I was like 27. <laughs> <laughs> Invited me to Fat Burger when it existed at the time on State Street, brought me there, opened up his Bible without knowing a single thing about me, took me through an expositional verse-by-verse study of 1 Peter and just started unpacking and unraveling, saying, "Uh, you must be ready in the last days and these last times to know Jesus. Do you know, Lazo, that it's the last days and Jesus is coming? Do you know Jesus? And he brought me through the entire first chapter of 1 Peter before he figured out that I was number one a Christian, that I was 27, and that I worked at the church. And when he figured that out, he was like, oh, awesome, praise God. And he bounced and went on to the next person. And he was so powerful and compelling. He was an evangelist. I was about ready to walk down the aisle in Fatburger. Christian, but I wanted more of what he was describing. Some of us are better than others at it because of the Holy Spirit. I'm not as good as he is, but I'm still called to do it. So don't get gift envy. Don't get gift aversion. It's not about the gifts. It's about us functioning as the body of Christ. Fifth observation we need as a church to cultivate a healthy environment for these gifts. We need to be able to not be afraid of them, nor to get weird with them, but to create a healthy environment where they can exist for God's glory and for our good. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26, Paul says, All things must be done for edification. Here's what that would mean in a church this size. In Carpentry of Ventura and in Santa Barbara. When Paul is describing, especially in Corinthians to the church, that a certain person will come with a song, someone else will come with a word, someone else will come with a prophetic utterance, and all of these things should be done for mutual edification, you have to keep in mind that Paul was speaking to churches that were not this big. They were probably more the size of a comm group that you or I are in, where it was more uh, cultivating for the grace of God, it was more... uh, Conducive for the edification of the church in a smaller setting for prophetic utterances to be uh, be exploding and for uh, the gift of tongues and the gift of healings and for all people to share and to mutually uh, pour into one another. In a gathering like this that is so large, we can't cultivate certain gifts in a way, listen, that is edifying to everybody. If everyone were to just start speaking in tongues, that would be weird and nobody would know what everyone is saying, and that is not the point of tongues, and in a way that is faithful to Scriptures. But we have to, instead of shying away from those gifts, figure out environments where we can cultivate them so that we can grow healthy. Don't despise prophetic utterances, Paul said, but examine them. Comm groups, prayer meetings, homes, small communities, families, You don't know what that looks like. Ask the person running the prayer meeting. Ask your calm group leader. If you think you have the gift of prophecy, don't just break down the door of some random calm group and just start blurting stuff out. That'd be really weird. That'd be weird. (laughs) But ask. Last observation. If you don't know what your gift is, probably the wrong way to figure out what your gift is is to just, Decide that you want a gift and start doing it. Britt once pulled me aside at Jelly, uh, jelly Bowl in Carpinteria. We sat down on this log and I said, I think I, I think I have this particular gift, but I'm not sure. I don't want to screw it up. What do I do? He said, well, start serving. At the basis of every gift in the church is a heart of servanthood. And Britt didn't make that up. Peter did said in First Peter chapter 4, verse 7 through 10, above all, maintain an intense love for each other, since love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining, based on the gift each one has received. Use it to serve others. As good ma- managers of the varied grace of God, you want to get... To the bottom of identifying what gift or gifts God has given you for the edification of the church. Just start serving people. Show up at your comm group and just, just ask to, to be used. Put yourself in a place of servanthood. Start to think about others in the body more than yourself. And you'll begin to notice that that spiritual gift will begin to rise up in you. If you have the gift of teaching, you'll just want to talk about the Bible. If you have the gift of prophecy. You don't have to get weird and be like, hey, everybody, I have a word from the Lord. Probably some of you have the gift of prophecy and you don't even know it. Some of you probably prophesy and you don't even know it. You speak truth into people's lives and you're prophesying. Some of you will walk into a calm group or a prayer meeting and just uh, see things that, that could use some help or administration or organization. Put yourself forward and start to do it. Look at this litany of gifts in the scriptures and abroad and say, Is there anything that I can do to bless the body? So the problem, and I, I say this not to unbelievers, but to the church, to the Christian, is that we have the tendency to use our gifts to further our own ambitions. I do. And that is the fallen nature of humanity arising, trying to take over in us. It's that battle. You see, sin causes the Christian not to want to use gifts to unify, but to use gifts to distinguish. Isn't that what every reality show and every contest and Every uh, type of uh, display that we see on TV and every competition that we put ourselves in and even our deepest desires, sometimes is to use our gifts not to bring each other together but to distinguish how we are different from one another. How I am different from you and how I should be in a different place. That is the sin nature in us and Jesus endeavors to retrain our old nature by his manifold grace. Grace was given to each of us according to the measure of the Messiah's gift. The word that Paul uses, the Greek word is charis, which means grace. He interchanges a couple words to describe spiritual gifts. You might be familiar with the other Greek word called charisma. That's where we get our English word charisma. Paul uses it to speak about spiritual gifts, but it means literally a manifestation of grace. God pours his grace out towards you and I, and a spiritual gift is the manifestation of that grace in community. See, what God does in an individual will thrive in community. Gifts of grace are to benefit the whole body of Christ. Here's what could be discouraging about a church like this. I I grew up in small churches, churches that were never more than hundred, some of them thirty to fifty. And it's very easy to to do stuff like this. In a church this size, it's easy to think that you're not needed. It's easy to look around and say, Well, he's got that cover and they got that cover and the roof isn't caving in, so I guess I'm nobody needs me. I'll just show up and leave and there should be a wallflower, but that is that is not true. You are needed. Look ahead in verse 16, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, at the end of 16, Paul says that the growth of the body, the building of itself up in love, happens by the proper working of each individual part. What that means is, is that if you are not functioning, the church is not functioning either. And I don't want that to come across as a guilt trip, but rather an encouragement that you are that important in the body of Christ regardless of whether you have some sensational gift or you just make a good, mean chicken casserole for Comm Group, you are needed. And when you do not operate in what God has called you to operate in, the church suffers for it. Some of you of, a, of an older flavor may be tempted to look in on the church and see a lot of young people, passionate and zealous up on stage doing all kinds of stuff and say or even feel that maybe the church or the age has passed you by and that that is a lie from Satan the church cannot function without every single proper working of each individual part and listen to those of you that are older than 30 or 35 we need you Younger people who are passionate and zealous about theology and about the things of God need older men and women who don't just know theology but have put it to practice in the experience of their life. We need men and women who don't just know a few things about the Bible but who have suffered the things of the Bible. Who can teach us from their wisdom and their experience how they have been faithful and how they have not been faithful. We need to learn from your mistakes and to see how you handled it. We need to see your marriages. Please, show us a marriage that works by the grace of God. We need to see how you operate in the job place. We need to see how you treat your wife and your husband and your kids. Don't go away. We need you. Lastly, if we were to do that, if we were to identify that Christ is the king that unifies and that he gives us gifts of diversity, diversity, In order to unify us, we will see that this unity accomplishes what we see in verse 9 and 10. What does he ascended mean except that he had descended to the lower parts of the earth? The one who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Filling all things doesn't just speak of volume. It doesn't mean like we're a a vessel and He's pouring into us like water, although other scriptures use that type of phraseology. What it means, uh, literally, filling of all things, is that we are coming under the rule and reign of the King who unifies us. We're behaving according to to his rule and reign. We actually believe that he's a king and that we're following him. We're not just believing, we're not succumbing to easy believism or nominalism, but we're saying, you are the king of my life and I will do what you say. Rule and reign over this tyrannical heart. That might, for some of you who are new, sound pretty harsh and imperialistic, that Jesus is a king that rules and reigns. Until you start to see how he does it. What does he say? How does, what does he ascended mean except that he descended? You know how Jesus has endeavored to take over the world? He who could call down legions of angels to burn everything up and take over thing and subject everything to himself by force. As men and women have tried to do throughout history, Christian and secular. He chooses to do it through the incarnation. Jesus wins everything by losing He wrestles your affections by losing. He conquers the world through suffering. He ascends to glory by descending into shame. And this is what humanity needs. And this is what we as the church needs. A lasting unity requires a king so mighty that the rebellious will follow him. And it requires a savior so loving that the selfish will emulate him. We need a powerful king that will change us and a savior that is loving that will melt our hearts in his kingly might he crushes our rebellion but in his saving love he melts our hearts to want to be exactly like him and this is exactly what Christ said to his disciples who would set the flavor for him in Mark chapter 10 I did not come to be served I came to serve and to put my life up as a ransom for many Imitate me. If this is describing the life that you signed up for when you saw Christ and the Holy Spirit opened up your eyes spiritually to see Him as better than anything else, our proper response is to begin to ask the Lord and to identify what are the giftings that God has given us. And don't fall into the temptation of saying, What need can I fill? There are plenty of needs. Don't be need-driven. Be call-driven. God will call you to a need. It was Howard Thurman that said so, uh, so famously, don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive and then go do that because what the world needs is people who have come alive. You have been brought to life by the powerful grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Go be alive in the right place. Two, recognize that gifts are not for you or about you. Gifts are grace-oriented and others-oriented. Ask the Lord not just to identify and to give you gifts, but how you can use them to build up His body for the kingdom of God. And lastly, use those gifts in such a way that Christ's rule and reign would be evident to everybody outside our church. That somehow the secular world would look inside a a building of people who are chaotic and rebellious and just like them, but for some reason by the extravagant love and powerful nature of God's grace are brought together in unity and in their diversity, serving one another for the greater good of God. The world sees that. They're going to want to know what king you serve and you will be able to say, Jesus Christ, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Some of you need... More than natural gifts, you need a fresh empowering of the Holy Spirit. As we worship this morning at all three campuses, there will be prayer teams to the left and to the right. Paul would say to Timothy, I want you to fan a flame, the gift that was given to you by the laying on of hands. Some of you love Jesus Christ and want to serve him, but you don't know how you need the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon your life in extravagance. Let the hands be laid on you with prayer, And the oils being uh, uh, anointing you uh, is symbolic of the power of the Holy Spirit so that He can come upon you in power and in giftings to serve in the context of your life and each other. Some of you need to be on the opposite end of these gifts. Some of you may have a terminal illness. We believe that God heals today. We believe that He's not done showing His extravagant ability to break chains and to loose bonds and to heal the broken. Some of you may have cancer. Some of you may just have a headache. Come forward and get prayer. For James would say, is anyone among you sick? He should call the elders of the church and they should pray over him after anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person and the Lord will restore him to health. We believe that God heals. We believe that God sets free. We believe that God does everything that he says he does if we would just ask him in humility. Let's do that today. And let's chase after him like a church that has been radically transformed. Lord, thank you for your word. And thank you for the gifts of the Spirit which you lavish on us to show that you can bring confused, broken, chaotic hooligans and radicals and make them get along. Not just for the sake of community and getting along and unity's sake, but because you declared once upon a time, in the jaws of Hades, that you would build your church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And we believe that right now, Christ, you are making a name for yourself. You are making yourself famous in Santa Barbara and Carpinteria and Ventura. And we just want to gather around you in the ways that you have equipped us to say loudly, you are the famous one. So Holy Spirit, Fall upon us this morning in power. Rejuvenate us, restore the joy of the Lord that is our salvation. Give us everything that we need to leave this building to make your name more famous.